This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending November 18th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with Trip, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. And joining us today is Andrew Jacobs, Head of Structured Finance. This week, retail earnings reports reflected mixed performance, resulting from managing inventories and rising costs. And some hawkish Fed comments get a market reaction after the release of fresh economic data. Retail sales rose in October as consumers spent more. Supplier price increases slowed last month. And housing continued to cool as construction declined and home builder sentiment fell to the lowest in a decade. Manus, the yield curve inversion between the two-year and 10-year treasuries had deepened to its widest level in four decades, and the three-month 10-year curve inverted even more. What's going on? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to our colleague, Stephen Bushbaum, about this a few hours ago. We had him on last week talking about REIT earnings and other things, and he was pointing out the steepness of the inversion and just how stark it is. And if you look at it right now, you're talking about a you know, let's call it a 422 year, 432 year, something like that, and a 370, 10 year, or that's what we went into today. So you're negative 60, 65 basis points on the inversion. And what is that telling you, right? It's telling you that in the short term, the Fed is going to stay incredibly aggressive in pushing rates up. Right? People are thinking the short end of the curve is going to continue to be driven higher and higher and higher. But at some point, we are going to hit a wall, and that's going to lead to a real economic contraction. There's really no other way to explain the shape of this yield curve right now. It feels like we are very much in a tug of war. The market wants to rally. The market wants to believe that the Fed will be in a position to cut rates, that we've seen peak inflation. Certainly the data, the last two data points have underscored that with the CPI and PPI numbers. But the Fed, on the other hand, not only are they trying to take away the punch bowl at the, at the, you know, the height of the party. They're calling the neighbors, calling the police and, you know, locking up the children to end the party, right? It's, they are doing everything they can to make sure that people get religion, that they're not going to take their foot off the gas on the rate hike strategy anytime soon. So a lot of push and pull in the markets. It's certainly been volatile, more volatile to the upside recently, uh, which is satisfying for borrowers. Rates have fallen to some degree over the last two or three weeks and for equity investors, but I'm not sure the bumpiness is completely behind us yet. Yeah, it's interesting, man. As this week, uh, we had a couple of the Fed president, uh, James Bullard and uh, Loretta Mester, that basically came out. Bullard specifically said the policy rate's not yet in a zone that may be considered sufficiently restrictive. Then he showed some charts that suggested the rate may have to rise to a level between 5 to 7% in order to quash inflation. Mester, she's president of the Cleveland Fed, echoed some of Bullard's remarks um, in her own speech on Thursday. So, you know, very hawkish tone there. I think if we look at some of the numbers that came out this week, U.S. retail sales rose 1.3% in October. Uh, that's according to the Census Bureau. That's the biggest monthly gain since February and is higher than the 1% economists had expected. Consumer spending was flat in September. Retail sales, which are not adjusted for inflation, were up 8.3% for the 12 months ending October, which was slightly down from uh, September's 8.6%. All of this was reported on by Wells Fargo economists, Tim Quinlan and Shannon Seary, 
They wrote in a note saying, it's tempting to cheer on the resilience of the consumer, but the staying power of spending gives businesses no incentive to forego price increases. And they later detailed that shoppers spent more uh, on a everyday staples, gasoline and food, which we've talked about ad nauseum on the pod. Uh, but they also shelled out more money on discretionary items such as cars, furniture and restaurant meals. So I think we're, you know, we're seeing the Fed maybe feeling a little bit of comfort that peak inflation has passed us by. But at the same time, consumers seem to still be spending, which may not be slowing down the economy as hoped. Yeah, Lonnie, think about that for just a moment. That remark about terminal rates getting to five to seven percent. And think about what that will do to some of the people we've spoken about before, some of these transitional borrowers that borrowed on fixed rate, had to buy caps. We talked about how expensive interest rate caps got when SOFR was three and a half percent. Imagine that SOFR goes up to, I don't know, five and a quarter or, God forbid, seven percent. I mean, we talked about a cap costing a borrower two or three percentage points when SOFR was three and a half percent. That percentage would go up to seven, eight, nine percent if you were talking about a multi-year cap when SOFR was at 7%. We were on a call earlier today with a bank, several of us, and we talked about you know, the risks to the market. And what we said was, you know, we think that there'll be bumps in the road and those bumps outside of office and retail will be episodic and it'll be on the cuspy properties that couldn't complete a business plan and for which higher rates will have kind of impeded their ability to finish, get things over the finish line. Right. But that was assuming that SOFR, you know, doesn't go much above four or four and a half. If if we get to a seven percent SOFR or even a six percent SOFR, all bets are off. Right. The, if these capital calls get to be seven or eight or nine percent, it won't just be the cuspy assets that see episodic defaults. It'll be a much bigger set of of assets that hit the ground. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I was actually doing some research this week. It's interesting on the interest rate caps for those transitional loans. You know, the initial cap that they purchase is just for that 24 or 36 month first term. They may have three 12 month extension options, but they're having to renew the cap at each one of those. And to your point, I mean, that's devastating at that point. And they're not going to be left with much optionality because they're going to be underwater on asset value if rates get to that. So it's not like they can just trade out if they can't refinance or afford the cap. I read some commentary online that the sentiment, I think, is that Bullard's may be broken from what the overall Fed thinking is, and that that's kind of worst case scenario with not much traction to get there. But to your point, I mean, they're talking about it. Um, I think they're trying to instill, we talked after the podcast last week, 7.7 on CPI number when you're headed up and you don't know where peak inflation in seemed really, really bad. Everyone was cheering 7.7 when it's on the downside. But if you think about it, 7.7 is still really, really high. So the Fed, in my estimation, is going to continue to push. So hopefully we can get to something that quashes you know, the market a little without having a crash landing. 5 to 7% gets us to a crash landing pretty quickly. In addition to knowing a lot about the CMBS and CRE markets, our guest here today, Andrew Jacobs, also knows an awful lot about the corporate CLO market. And I just want a couple sentences from you, Andrew, about what this higher rates have done to that particular part of the economy and has it had a material impact on kind of the 
double B and single B part of the market that relies on that source of the market for its funding? The story when it comes to leveraged loan borrowers is not as necessarily as negative as it is with commercial real estate, you know, at least certain sectors in commercial real estate. You know, certainly raising interest rates is, is tough for companies that have to pay a lot more interest. That being said, a lot of companies are forecasting and experiencing quickly rising revenue that to accompany uh, those rising interest rates. A lot of companies that are in corporate CLOs are actually quite bullish about their economic future. Um, so, you know, clearly there's risk if those economic forecasts, if their revenue forecasts miss, then you're going to see some, some big challenges. That being said, you know, leverage is better than it was going into, you know, the 08 time period in this space. Yield is, is definitely higher on the loans, but it's not crazy. It's around like 10% yield to maturity on, on like a corporate loan that goes in, into CLOs if it's, you know, a single B rated or so. Even 2020 was way worse uh, than, than we're seeing right now in terms of downgrades, for example, way more downgrades. There was a 11-week period, if I remember correctly, where like a third of the market was downgraded to triple C over the course of just 11 weeks back then. And we're nowhere near that right now uh, when it comes to, to corporate CLOs. So the, the sentiment is sort of in the middle when it comes to that space. People are certainly worried, but it doesn't seem so bad yet. And if you look at like the forecasts for defaults, it's it's really like floating around averages, like long-term averages, like three for two percent, three percent, that kind of thing. And nobody's really forecasting increased defaults until 2024. So Andrew has gone racing past green shoot territory all the way into tropical rainforest territory. So uh, a good way to start this podcast. We do have a lot of concerns about commercial real estate, but Andrew kind of telling us not all that much to worry about on the on the corporate side of the lending, at least as it comes to the leverage loan market. Well, I, I like that as a start. You know, the, the, the messaging I'm, that I'm talking about here, you have, you have to remember though, is this is coming from people who are talking their books. So, but it is based on some data. So that's, that's always at least a little reassuring. Well, I like that. I like that story. It's a good start to the week before Thanksgiving and something to be thankful for already. We should have you on more often, Andrew, especially during those weeks where we have nothing but Crabgrass. Andrew is always upbeat, so you can expect that from him. Now, we have a couple other sectors we want to get into before we dive into mm -hmm. some of the specific CRE data. One is the housing market, and I know Lonnie had, had some data points to cover there. Yeah, so a lot of news on the housing front. Home construction continued to decline, and not surprising as construction has declined. Home builder sentiment has also declined. It's at the lowest level in a decade, and with those Declining, you know, sentiment figures, less demand on the construction side. Uh, guess what happens? Builders have to start offering incentives. So according to the National Association of Home Builders, 59% of builders reported using some form of incentive to try to lure buyers into the marketplace, which was a significant increase month to month. And it looks like 25% of builders actually were paying points for buyers. So that means they're buying down the loan for the borrowers. That was up from 13%, so effectively doubled. And you can see 37% of the builders had cut prices in November, up from 26% in September. Average price reduction is at 6%. So a lot of numbers there. I guess the moral of the story is if you're a home builder right now, it's pretty tough sledding. Financing is not favorable. Buyer sentiment has shifted, and you're trying to do everything you can. There was a lot of 
vacant land purchasing over the last several years and a lot of new home subdivision plotting that's been done and the demand they couldn't build them fast enough and now they have an influx and so it'll be interesting to see you know maybe silver lining good news average 30-year fixed rate mortgage did drop to 6.61 percent i think about a month ago we peaked at around seven and a quarter and so that's pretty good news but still not great on a relative basis compared to where we've been the last few years so let's talk a little bit about earnings. We saw a slew of earnings this week, especially on the retail front, and it was a little bit of uh, winners and not so much winning. Let's start with Walmart and Target. Could you have had more differing results from two firms that really kind of operate in the same space, right? Both are kind of discount retailers offering grocery and other essentials. Walmart easily beat on earnings, improved their forward-looking forecast, and you know the stock was rewarded accordingly, just shot up. You would think that Walmart and Target would kind of trade and behave similarly since their markets are, are kind of alike. Target, a day or two later, came out with dismal earnings, announcements that they had to cut costs, their stock price on Wednesday dropped 13%. So what do you take away from this? I guess the takeaway for me is that Walmart is just an incredibly well-oiled machine, incredibly well-run and able to manage all of these inventory and supply chain issues effortlessly and not so much for Target, right? How else could you explain the, the great differentiation in outcome? But overall, more broadly, Martha, you talked about good news and bad news in these earnings. I think the good news for earnings, generally speaking, outside of the tech space, has been that for two quarters now, analysts have been expecting just a dropping off of the cliff of earnings as a function of higher labor costs, higher inventory costs, supply chain issues, higher borrowing costs, all of the above. And analysts have been talking about a potential earnings apocalypse. And other than you know the big fang stocks, most of the firms have a, have have sidestepped that. You know, Macy's great earnings this week. Stock was rewarded enormously. Even the guys that didn't blow away on earnings, they muddled through. Kohl's, right? Not terrible. They 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 edged out of earnings slightly. BJ's same thing. Bath and Body Works blew away estimates. So probably more good than bad in the whole market. And if you just kind of look at the the real losers, like the targets that are out there. You know, the winners are, are just kind of outpacing the losers by a pretty good margin. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on the Walmart and Target stuff, Manus. I know you had said that they kind of play in the same space, but I think if you look a little deeper into some of their product lines, uh, Walmart actually generates about half of its revenue from groceries. And I think Target is predominant in that discretionary items, apparel, home goods, electronics. I'm not an analyst, but if I was looking at it from my perspective, that may be some of the cause of the delta there. The other thing that Target highlighted was that they've been negatively impacted by organized retail crime. I think their uh, chief financial officer said that they had about $400 million in losses uh, year to date, and they expect that to grow to $600 million by the end of the year. So I don't know necessarily if that's limited to specific geographies or if that's something they're seeing nationwide. But, you know, as somebody that's a retail consumer, you know, that's pretty daunting because those of us that aren't at part of that organized crime ring are going to be subsidizing those losses at some level because the company's going to try to pass those through to the consumer. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. And I think 
you also hit it right on the head with the increased cost uh, burden for associates and staff. Uh, Lowe's actually uh, came out with their earnings and said that they spent 170 million on permanent wage increases and 200 million in bonuses for their frontline hourly associates. So those are some pretty big headline numbers, uh, you know, for a home improvement store to uh, to be ponying up for their frontline and hourly staff. Home Depot story. You had to really scratch beneath the surface there to get the the real bottom line, right? Their sales did go up there, but people said it was really attributable to higher costs. They didn't have more sales, you know, per unit sales or number of customers coming through the doors. What they benefited from was for selling things at a higher price. So a little bit of a mixed bag for Home Depot. And and you would think with the housing market slowing down, um, at some point, Lowe's and Home Depot have to be caught up in the, you know, that slowdown as well. I think I would probably call that a green shoot, the fact that they didn't see, you know, that they were able to stay flat in a market that is losing altitude quickly. One comment I was going to make, Manis, and I think it accounts for some of the divergence in performance was how some of these firms handled inventory management. And so you saw some do a very good job of either maintaining or not growing their inventory significantly where others like Home Depot are still stuck with inventory that they're trying to move. So it accounts for some of the the difference between uh, the different performers. And you also saw different spending habits. So consumers are now moving into areas where they're going to get groceries at a deeper discount. So they're going to Walmart they're not spending money on things like clothing, and yet you have some of the, the luxury items that are still moving at stores like Macy's. So it's an interesting uh, divergence in both how the consumer is spending their money and how these companies are managing both expenses and their inventories. I think those are both excellent points that, that you and Lonnie made. On the Walmart side, I didn't think of this, but it's absolutely spot on that Walmart's penetration into that grocery market is enormous and much bigger than Target. For your point, Martha, I think one of the most overlooked parts of running a good business is having good people that can manage operations. And in flush times, I think that gets forgotten. A rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, but in rough times, uh, a well-run operation can mean the difference between a 20% spike in your stock price and a 20% sell-off. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So let's turn to our TREP loan payoff report, a uh, report that we put out monthly. So this is a piece of data. We've been running this for about 10 years. And what we try to look at is loans that have reached their maturity date without having previously become defeased or prepaid, what percentage of those loans pay off. And it's a reflection of how liquid the markets are, how easy it is to get refinancing and, and so forth. We are quick to caution that no one month makes a trend. This number can be lumpy. Um, but in flush times, when rates are low, when the economy is booming, when liquidity is high, it's not unusual to see 70, 75, 80% of the loans that reach their maturity date pay off on time. When things get a little rocky, that number tends to fall. And that 80% may sound low. Why are only 80% of the loans paying off at their maturity date? Well, there is a lot of adverse selection in this. Loans that get all the way to their maturity date are the ones that hadn't previously seen the property get refinanced, be sold for a premium value, the loan be defeased or prepaid early. 
So these are kind of the stragglers. But in good times, you know, up to 80% of these loans will pay off on their balloon date. 20% will extend and pretend. The last two or three months, we've been more in that 40% range, low 40%, which means these loans that are kind of cuspy, uh, have reached the maturity date, are having a tougher time lining up refinancing than they had at, at lower uh, rate environments or at the time when there was more liquidity and more appetite for lending. So just something to keep an eye on going forward. I don't think this is something we put out on our blog. We do send it out on Trepwire, but we are happy to share it. And if any of our listeners want to see the last 24 months worth of data and the color around it, we're happy to share it with you. Moving on to a topic we've talked about before. We have a report that we're putting out around CRE CLOs from 2019 to 2021. CRE CLO issuance grew by almost 150%. And some of the detail behind the numbers is something that our own Jack LaForge looked at. And Andrew is going to talk a little bit about what's behind the numbers. It's been quite a run for CRE CLOs. 2021 was by far an all-time historical year with you know, 45 billion of issuance. So this year, probably not going to hit quite the same number, but it's looking like the second best year of all time um, anyway. Uh, we're already above 30 billion. You just compare it to some of the other TNBS and uh, asset classes. Uh, last year, it was outpacing conduits, which was obviously one of the, used to be one of the most popular uh, CNBS asset classes. So uh, kind of a sea change there, you know, lots of, lots of issuance in this one specific space. In terms of exposure, uh, we, you know, we'll go into this in the report. I'm not going to steal the thunder, but the CRE CLOs, it's, it's kind of a specific asset class, uh, a lot of exposure to multifamily but there's a lot of benefits to it that, that investors have embraced. Uh, so they're, they're very flexible. The multifamily is seen as a positive from, on a relative basis. It's, a, it's an attractive piece of debt, high relative yield, floating rate. So a lot of good things. And uh, people are willing to do the work to look at the, uh, you know, do the underwriting. It's transitional loans, so it's a little bit riskier than something you'd see, see in a conduit. But uh, people do the work and, and make sure they're getting paid for it. Yeah, the report's coming soon, and, and it has, has a lot of good data in it. It's an interesting part of the market because it's been a driver of that economy, especially in the multifamily side, allowing people to make the numbers work in areas that are not typically served uh, by the CMBS conduit market or maybe the GSEs, right? That traditional space. And now the numbers for many of these borrowers going forward will not work, right? It won't be as easy to make that debt service coverage ratio work in a 4% SOFR environment as it was in a 25 basis point SOFR environment. So it'll be interesting to see over the next six to 12 months, how that impacts the velocity of transactions that we see. Any thoughts on that, Andrew? You've been through several upturns and downturns. Any gut reaction uh, as to how much this slows down or uh, do we just kind of muddle through and or you know, who fills the space of the CRE, CLO market if it pulls back? I always hesitate to make predictions when it comes to issuance. We've seen a little bit of a slowdown this year, but it's still a great year. You could make the argument that we're going through supply that, that was kind of already, you know, already ready to go, essentially. Like we're working through what was there. And maybe next year we, we see the downturn continue even more. And, it, and it's, you know, a much starker situation. You see another space that's sort of, adjacent to commercial real estate, the SFR space, where it's a kind of a similar story. Presidential commercial hybrid, tremendous growth in the past few years, huge amounts of investment. 
And now the economics don't make any sense. And, um, you know, people are kind of figuring out what's going to happen. So, Lonnie, you have your finger on the pulse all the time of the multifamily market. What do you think the CRE, CLO, higher rate environment does to the, the velocity of money? I'm maybe a little more uh, bearish than Andrew in terms of looking forward. I would say this probably dries up, maybe not totally, but it's definitely not going to be at the same pace that it has just because the economics don't make sense. And from the lender's perspective, the additional risk that you're carrying for these story loans or these transitional properties, like you have to factor that in. And if these properties are midstream on a renovation and the lender has to take them back, you know, they don't want to be in the in the selling business anyways, even on stabilized assets. They definitely don't want to be taking back mid-transition properties. So I think, you know, logic says this probably slows down. I think investor appetite probably has waned a little bit as well, just because in some markets where they were able to underwrite double-digit rate growth with, you know, a fair amount of certainty, maybe some of that's being called into question now with a little bit of softening on that side of the market. So I would say we'll probably see a little bit of a slowdown here. Uh, Andrew mentioned the single family rental stuff. I, I did see something today. I think it was JP Morgan where they announced like a $1 billion fund to go back into the SFR space. And so, you know, my super secret, not so secret thought process about that is that the really large hedge fund PE, you know, institutional capital that was plowing into single family rentals were actually driving up home sales prices significantly because they were adding way too much demand on that side. So I think they intentionally hit the brakes with the rates. It makes sense, but their cost of capital is so much lower than an individual buyer. Then now that rates are up, those prices for the same houses are significantly less. So I think they're probably looking at this over the next 12 to 18 months as a really good opportunistic time to buy in bulk um, at a discount. Lonnie, flying us from the tropical rainforest right into the... Uh... Desert. We'll call the Sahara Desert, but maybe someplace that's suffering from a mild drought. We'll California. Have to see California, there we go. So we have done the last several weeks a little segment on digging for data. We're not going to dig with a bulldozer, so we don't need the bulldozer sound. Maybe it's more of, I don't know, the garden weasel. Remember that? Yeah, I've been out, I've been out in the backyard with some post hole diggers myself. So my my hands, I realized I'm not uh not used to working with my hands like I used to be, so I already have blisters. So this will be a pretty quick hitter this week, but it'll uh, tease out some stuff that we have in the hopper. We put out a uh, sublease geospatial representation of where the markets were that had the most sublease space. And what we're working on now for our digging through the data is actually going back to those markets and some others and layering on top of those announced sublease opportunities where we have top five tenant data showing that there's going to be large lease expirations coming up over the next 24 months. So I think that just adds another wrinkle to those markets where they're already struggling with sublease and potentially have some, you know, fairly large leases that just organically are going to be expiring over the next two years. So more to come on that, uh, but I think that'll make for an interesting read and some, you know, potential opportunities if you're long on the office sector. So speaking of office, let's dig into the office sector in detail. Let's start with a story that was in the New York Times this past week, and we've talked about the headwinds, obviously, in office for the last two years. But uh, this was an interesting story because it had some some interesting data points that were were new. It kind of talked a lot about value and vacancy rates and things like that. And there were some estimates in there uh, from a few different sources. So there was a recent study by uh, some professors at Columbia and NYU 
where they they said that the value of U.S. office buildings could plunge by 39% or $454 billion in coming years. So pretty massive numbers there. Um, the market value of office buildings in, in New York City fell $28.6 billion last year, and it was uh, the first decline of, of such size since at least 2000. Uh, that, was, that was based on an estimate from the Office of the State Comptroller. So it, it's been just, a, obviously, it's been a tough, tough time for office, and it seems like it's continuing. Um, even in New York, where there, you, know, you have people that are staying in the office, or companies that are staying in the office, I, I should say, a lot of them are moving around or, or changing uh, to a different space. You know, you hear companies moving from a slightly older building to you know, Hudson Yards, for example, where they're getting newer space and potentially lowering their square footage at the same time. So it's, you know, shuffling around. It's not clear where that, where it all lands, but office vacancy rates across the country are at a record 19%. And in some cities, it's even higher. Yeah, you know, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco are even higher. Part of the study calculated that New York office space, New York City office space averages $16,000 a year per employee. That's a cost of $16,000 a year. So very substantial fixed costs just to have people in an office and in the environment, a lot of companies are probably trying to figure out if it makes sense. Yeah, I think it's it's actually interesting to start seeing some of this quantified, Andrew. So we've talked a lot about you know the office market kind of qualitatively and saying which markets maybe will survive or not. But you know, when you have people coming out saying for each employee in New York that's in an office building is costing $16,000, uh, that allows you to do some cost-benefit analysis pretty quickly and say, how do we right-size this to make sense for us? Or does having a hybrid or remote staff or some portion of our staff not coming to the office make sense? So, you know, I think we're we're kind of midstream in this evolution of how people perceive the office market. And then that gross vacancy number that you put out there at 19% nationwide it's pretty significant, and that's from JLL. And then the the markets that you mentioned, Chicago, Houston, and San Francisco that are above 20, I mean, specifically Chicago and San Francisco have historically been high rent office markets. So, um, you know, it's, it's a significant blow to that space. And I think there's downstream implications that we're not necessarily talking about today, but we will be in the next couple of years as property tax revenues dry up, sales tax revenues dry up from the lack of people being in those buildings. It'll be interesting to see just how that plays out over the coming years. So Andrew, if you, if our CFO comes to you and wants you to share an office with three other guys, I guess that that says they don't value you at $16,000 per person, do they? they you know, you're, you're kind of dealing with reality kind of right in front of your face, right? You four guys get in that 32 square foot office <laughs> and, and make the best of it. That's right. That's right. Well, if my CFO tells me that, then I, then, you know, I have to listen, right? <laughs> there you go. Uh, one other tell this week when it comes to negative news for the office front, another tell, if you will, just kind of like the New York Times article. Bloomberg came out with this this week. This was from Natalie Wong and John uh, Gittleson. They had a piece that said uh, some major U.S. banks are considering the sales of loans on properties backed by uh, commercial real estate, uh, and specifically offices. The story mentions J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, and Barclays as those that are, uh, quote-unquote, gauging appetite for office loans uh, for sale. So if I'm reading between the lines here, what I'm guessing is these banks originated these loans for securitization. They're sitting on their balance sheet. They're finding them hard to securitize because of the 
lack of appetite for investors for office debt in the current market and due to the fact that probably underwater rate-wise, and the article says that these things are being offered at considerable discounts. So it does talk to the state of mind of some major U.S. banks. If they're looking to sell these things off, they're probably not thinking that demand for office debt is, is going to rubber band back anytime soon. Yeah, I think, Manus, and what's interesting there is I, I, the regulatory environment, I think, is going to drive a lot of that. So I think in the article, they talked about heightened scrutiny from the regulators. And I think if the regulators actually start to come in and enforce those, then we're going to see a completely different perspective from the lenders. Through COVID, everyone was kind of hands off and it was like, do what you have to do to keep things flowing. So I think in addition to the rates and everything that we've talked about, if the regulatory environment changes to more of a hawkish tone, I think some of these banks are going to be forced to take those actions. That certainly could be the case. The article itself points to Washington, D.C. and New York as being some of the geographies for which the loan collateral is uh, is located. So uh, more, to, more to come on that story down the road. So let's cover a couple of the green shoot stories that we had this week, Madison Office. Yeah, very quickly, I'll run down them. Some of these were, were kind of brand new in the last 24 hours. A Vanguard is expanding in Malvern, PA. They already have several hundred thousand square feet in that area. They're buying a 300,000 square foot building and looking to expand there. The Sabre Center in Texas, that is also being sold in uh, Alameda in California. Exolixis, which is a pharma drug discovery firm, they have leased another 100,000 square feet on Harbor Bay Parkway. I believe they already had 250,000 square feet in that neighborhood before this latest 100,000 square foot addition. One other, I guess you'd call this maybe a mixed green, in Richmond, Virginia, SunTrust had put 250,000 square feet of collateral up for sublease. This came after they merged with BBNT to become Truist. They were looking to give back, like I said, a quarter million square feet in that market. Now it turns out that Gen Financial, Genworth Financial, will take about 175,000 square feet of the space that SunTrust has given up. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news for Richmond is it does come at a cost for that part of the market. Uh, Genworth was planning to anchor a new development in Richmond, but those plans have been squashed. So a little mixed green there. And we had a trading alert regarding an office loan in Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, two two pieces of crabgrass this week. One which came out just a few moments ago. Amazon giving up um, about 150,000 square feet in the Seattle market. This comes on the heels of Microsoft letting some leases expire there. So it's of a piece that we saw this week and last week of major job-cutting announcements and space givebacks among the big tech stocks. On that trading alert that you were referring to, Martha, we put out a report earlier this week. It comes with some nuance. Uh, servicer data this week said that the loan on 350 Park in Midtown Manhattan had been sent to special servicing and was facing imminent default. Uh, it's a $400 million loan split across three CMBS deals. The collateral has about 600,000 square feet uh, at Park and 52nd Street. There's been a lot of moving pieces behind this loan. They lost a top tenant a couple of years ago. It was replaced by Citadel. Uh, Citadel now has 31% of the space on that property. 
Uh, in addition, recently, M&T Bank announced they would be moving. So a lot of moving pieces. Occupancy wasn't super high at the property to begin with. DSCR was 1.33x. So a lot going on there. We were alarmed by the note that said this loan was facing imminent default. Just today, Vornado issued a statement that came out through the press that the move to special servicing was more a function of trying to get the special servicer to greenlight a complex lease negotiation and was not a function of imminent default. That would be great news. We hope that the service was wrong in their reporting here, and that's what it turns out to be. But that was one of our big stories this week. All right, let's move on to retail. We have a number of stories, and hopefully we can cover most of them. Normally, you know, I'm so organized on these podcasts. I have all my green shoots written on my right palm and all my crabgrass written on my left palm. The ones on my left palm have much more legible handwriting. It's hard writing with my left hand, but my crab and green are kind of interspersed, but I'll try to, I'll try to keep them organized. Your chocolate's seems... in your peanut butter? <laughs> so let's talk about some good news first. Uh, on the green shoot side, uh, Kimco Realty paid $375 million for eight retail assets on Long Island. These tended to be um, grocery anchored properties. In fact, all eight may have been grocery anchored. Uh, big price to pay. Nice to see people putting up for retail. In Orlando, this comes from Steve Rizuski. Crossmark Services has acquired Post Commons in Melbourne. That property sold for $28 million. It's a public anchored shopping center, Publix, uh, the grocery store. In Sacramento, Broadstone Plaza One in Folsom, which is outside of uh, Sacramento, that sold for $63 million. MetLife was the buyer. It is a 250,000 square foot property in that town. And in Atlanta, this was a nice story here. The Plaza Fiesta is a retail property with almost 350,000 square feet. It's an indoor mall with two freestanding pads, which includes a CVS and a QT gas station, has a grocery store, Planet Fitness, uh, and a healthcare tenant. Uh, That property sold for more than $85 million. So a lot of transactions taking place, a lot of good news out there, and we're happy to report it. All right, let's go on to the hotel sector. A couple of good stories there. Yeah, we, we've we've had hotel on our agenda for the last several podcasts. We never seem to get to it, but there's a lot of good things that have been happening there. A lot of transactions and transactions being done at really hefty prices. A couple of them out there we'll, we'll touch upon. At the Four Seasons Resort and Residences in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that was sold for $315 million dollars. The story there comes from hotelmanagement.net. The price represents a 13x uh, earnings before interest, income tax, depreciation, and amortization, and a cap rate of 6.6% based on what they expect 2022 estimated results to be. Uh, The buyer of the property was Host Hotels and Resorts. Love that one. And in kind of Lonnie's neck of the woods, or a little bit south of Lonnie's neck of the woods, in the Houston area, it's not a Houston hotel, it's a Houston buyer, uh, Tillman Fertitta, who owns the NBA Houston Rockets, uh, he was the buyer of the full-service hotel known as the Montage Laguna Beach in Laguna Beach, California. This property was valued at $500 million in 2019 when a CMBS loan on the property was made 
sale price $650 million. So a 30% premium to that 2019 value. I think, Lonnie, we can call that a swish, can't we? Not shabby. I think from way down, yeah, from way downtown Bing. No, I'm, I'm a Mavericks fan. You're a Mavericks Uh, guy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm uh, super bullish on uh, Luka Doncic. Um, I love the Mavs. Rockets are okay. I was a Rockets fan back in the day in the nineties when they had Akeem Olajuwon and and that crew, but uh, not really a a Rockets fan. I do like the Astros. I'm not against Houston sports teams, but, but not a Rockets fan. I did have a funny story about this though. I was uh, up in New York this week and had a, a presentation at NYU with some colleagues and went to dinner afterwards. And one of the uh, guests at dinner actually used to do some work for uh, Mr. Fertitta and said that his go-to was to pay everyone in Landry's gift cards. So Tillman owns the Landry's chain restaurants. And so his go-to was to try to negotiate contracts and deals where, you know, the consideration could be his restaurant's gift cards AKA, you know, paying pennies on the dollar relative to what the uh, the real revenue would be. So uh, not sure if this, you know, 650 million had any Landry's gift cards included, but I wouldn't be shocked if it did. Tillman, my friend, dig a little deeper. Come on. How about some Rockets tickets or an autographed basketball or something? Come on. You know, come accommodations on, to stay at this hotel. I think it's uh, the I think the cheap rooms are twelve hundred bucks. The nice ones are eleven thousand. I'll take I'll take the eleven thousand. It's great to be talking about sports and commercial real estate in the same vein. You know, it's as you get older, you know, my kids tease me more and more. I played a lot of hoops throughout my whole life. You know, even into my mid fifties, I was still playing a lot of hoops. And my kids tell me now that I can't even get net, which means that if I go to jump up, I can't even grab the net anymore. You know, you used to measure yourself whether you could dunk a volleyball or a tennis ball or grab the rim. Now they tell me I can't even get net anymore. They might be right. Kids, they're they're great. I advise you not to try it because, you know, (laughs) we need you on the podcast. (laughs) We need, yeah. The day day I will, uh, you know, you'll see me have it completely given in is when I pick up that pickleball racket. You'll know that I've completely uh, given in to the other side. Don't get me started on that. Oh, boy. Here we go. Back to pickleball. So let's turn to shout outs. I think we'll start with Joel and Dave. Yes, they hosted me down in Georgia for a day of golf. Uh, two great gentlemen down there, a great company. Not so great golf, at least on, on my part. Quite cold, though. Atlanta's going through a, a bit of a cold streak. So when we teed off yesterday morning, I think it was 42 degrees, something like that. So Um, But two great guys and great to talk about everything, real estate, golf, sports, weather, and family. So thank you, gents, for having me. Sarah M. was interested in our risk modeling webinar. And just so you know, we're going to be hosting part two coming up on December 6th. So if you're interested in that, give us a shout on email and we'll send you the details. Jacob M. is interested in our student housing data. And on Twitter, Air Real Estate said getting a mention of latest acquisition was pretty cool and Roy responded my favorite pod yeah I, I just wanted to point out that um last time I was on the podcast somebody called me out for not having a Twitter presence and I, I have to say that these days that seems pretty uh, prescient um but it, you know you can you can always hit me up on Mastodon or or be real um, <laughs> or stick a stamp on an envelope right <laughs> stick something in the U.S. mail 
Andrew loves getting the old school mail, walking down to that mailbox every every morning, opening it up and seeing nothing in there. Don't you know it? We have a listener out there who's a longtime listener and frequent correspondent, and every now and then sends us gifts. In the past, she sent us Halloween candy after our Halloween episode, which was wonderful. She did send me a pickleball shirt, which I will don for our next podcast, or maybe even if we do, uh, we go to Crusty, maybe I'll wear it down at Crusty. I don't know, but uh, Deborah M., thank you for that that great gift. I wear a size small, Deborah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should have a pickleball uniform, you know, for our Crusty podcast. I did have a couple of shout outs, Martha and myself. As I mentioned, I was uh, fortunate enough to do a presentation with uh, NYU this week, and they had a pretty aspiring uh, master student there. Uh, Cameron S. came up followed up with an email after the event. And so I'm going to get back to you, Cameron, but uh, it's good to see the uh, the ambition. Uh, David reached out on Twitter today. And so Haley alerted me to that. I responded and David and I already had a phone call, uh, loan broker, uh, investment sales uh, representative out in California. So it was great to talk with him. John B. from Waterstone. Uh, if you know, you know, I'm going to leave it at that. And then Peter Z, he reached out on LinkedIn and uh, gave us some commentary around our read analysis last week. And I'm going to be sending uh, a response to you, Peter, here in the next day or so, and uh, maybe work on something together with you on that front. So uh, thanks for reaching out. Really enjoy getting to know some of our listeners on a little more personal level. So closing, the good news is live music is back, which obviously we hadn't seen for a while. The bad news is Ticketmaster had outages after an unprecedented demand for Taylor Swift concert tickets. Manus, was that you? Oh, my goodness. You know, do you remember back, maybe you do, Martha, maybe you don't, I don't know, back in the 80s when something would go on sale and you'd always try to be in an office when it went on sale and you'd have like 100 phones going at once with speed dial and you would try it. For me, it was... Sometimes it was concerts. Sometimes it was trying to get Met playoff tickets or, or some kind of great crazy sporting event. You know, later, ten years later, it was all about going on the internet, and it would crash with just incredible frequency and reliability. Right? If you wanted tickets, you would click that. You'd see the hourglass, and it would say your wait time is four hours and fifty-two minutes. And you'd watch that hourglass go around for for the rest of the day. It wasn't a lot of productivity happening when, uh, you know, those Bruce Springsteen or Rolling Stones tickets would come out. But it was worth the wait. And with that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or comment, send your email to podcast at truck.com and subscribe to our podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.